I uh, just need to let you know that um, so encouraged by our prayer meeting on Wednesday night. Uh, so thankful for what God is doing among us and uh, for the ways that he is sending so many people out uh, from here to take the gospel to all of the nations, to take the gospel even here just to our own community as well. And I'm so glad for all of you who joined us to call out to him on Wednesday night. So encouraging, so blessed, so thankful, and uh, so expectant for God to continue to do more as we continue to move forward. Uh, You might be familiar somewhat with the story of uh, Pastor Andrew Brunson. He's the American pastor who was detained in a Turkish prison for the past two years for crimes that he allegedly did not commit. And only in the past few weeks has he, has he been released and returned safely to the United States. Part of his story has been all over the news, uh, including a very well-publicized prayer uh, in the Oval Office at the White House. And uh, with little surprise, his return has garnered a lot of attention and a lot of interviews and articles uh, that have been written uh, given to the trials that he has faced. And it's the story of one pastor who relatively few people had ever heard of prior to his calls for release. And soon, like so many other stories in uh, the cycle of 24-7 news that we have in our culture, this story will fade into the distance and it will be replaced by other stories that capture our attention in the moment. But reading some of the stories of his release over the past few months and even following some of the stories over the past few weeks, it's made me wonder, what would it be like if Jesus were to walk onto the face of the earth for the very first time in our world today? What kind of reception would he get? Would Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and Snapchat and all of the other social media platforms explode with that kind of news like they often do with other news stories of our day that are not nearly as worthy as that? What kind of reception would Jesus get from our world today? And maybe that question's a little bit too big for you to try and process right now in this moment, so let's bring it a little bit closer to home. What kind of reception has Jesus received from you today? What kind of reception did Jesus receive from you when you woke up this morning? And you got in the car to come to church. What kind of reception has Jesus received from you this week? What kind of reception is he receiving from us right now? Open your Bible, if you would, to Matthew chapter 3. And last week in our series, in Matthew chapter 1, we learned of Jesus' long-anticipated birth. More than 400 years of silence from God were broken by the sound of a baby's cry. And Today in Matthew chapter 3 now, we fast forward about another 30 years and Jesus steps out of the shadows, so to speak. And what makes this truly amazing when Jesus arrives is that there is no fanfare. There are no parades. There are no dignitaries who are waiting for his arrival. There are no photo ops with presidents or other world leaders. There is nobody stopping and singing the national anthem. None of that is happening. In fact, the only thing that happens when Jesus arrives on the scene is that God himself rips open the heavens and audibly speaks to Jesus. And if that's the kind of reception that Jesus receives the very first time that he walks out into public view, should that not cause us then to sit up and take notice? 
Not only of what is happening there in that moment, but who is this person who is receiving this kind of attention, this kind of supernatural activity happening in that moment to him? What kind of reception would we give to Jesus? See, as we come to this passage in Matthew chapter 3, there is a sense of urgency here in this section of God's word that we simply cannot ignore. This passage in Matthew 3 that we're about to look at is about the baptism of Jesus. Although this passage is not just teaching us about baptism, though it does teach us about that, and we're going to get to that in a little bit, it's teaching us about who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do for us. And the reality is, we need a message like this because there is a lot of confusion today about who Jesus actually is. And let's be honest, some of that confusion has leaked into the faith of genuine Christians. 2015 survey done by the Barna Group revealed, among other things, that among those who declared themselves to be Christians, less than half of those people believe that Jesus is God. And more than half of those people believed that Jesus actually sinned, just like everybody else. That's a problem. And we need to understand who Jesus really is. The challenge, though, is that while we need to understand better who Jesus really is, we also need to understand better what baptism is really about. And it's interesting, isn't it? As you read through the gospel accounts, especially as you read through this account in Matthew's gospel, that Jesus made baptism the first public thing that he did and the last public thing that he said. He makes it the first public thing that he does here in Matthew chapter 3. He walks onto the public view for the very first time. And and as he does, the first thing that happens is he gets baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River. Then you fast forward to the end of Matthew's gospel to Matthew 28. And one of the last things that Jesus says before he ascends into heaven is, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Jesus makes baptism the first public thing that he did and the last public thing that he says. So as we come to this passage this morning in Matthew chapter 3, let's not miss the urgency of what is happening here, the urgency that is built into this passage. Because Jesus is not simply teaching us the extreme significance of baptism, but he is also giving us an exceptional sense of who he is. So, I want you to see from the very beginning this morning, as we get into this passage in Matthew 3, I want you to understand that this message today, the goal of this message, is a call to action for every single one of us. For every single person in this room right now, I want you to hear this from the very beginning, that by the time we get to the end of this message this morning, that this is a call to action for every single person in this room, regardless of where you are in your relationship with God, whether you're new in your faith or you're old in your faith, so to speak, whether you have been baptized, uh, you were baptized a long time ago or you were baptized here last weekend or this is the very first time maybe that you've ever heard of this thing called baptism. Listen, none of us can ignore the urgency of what is happening here in this passage in Matthew chapter three. So I want to encourage you right now as we get into God's word, do what you can to put yourself at the foot of this river. Do what you can to insert yourself into this story and put yourself at the foot of the Jordan River where Jesus is walking and and just try and imagine the one who comes walking down the hillside all by himself. Try to imagine 
The one who is walking into the water is actually the one who created the water. That this is the one who loves you and me so much that he is beginning his journey to the cross by getting baptized in the river. And this is the one who, through his baptism, is calling every single one of us to action. So don't miss this. Don't miss the urgency of what is happening right here. It is time, loved ones. It's time for us to realize that sitting on the sidelines won't do anymore. It's time for us to realize that half-hearted commitments to Jesus won't do anymore. It's time for us to realize that declaring our commitment to Jesus Christ compels every single one of us to action. It's time for us to see three truths from this passage here in Matthew chapter 3. So follow along with me as I read Matthew 3, starting at verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. All right. It's time for us to see three truths. So let's start with this. Number one, it is time to see who Jesus is. It's time to see who Jesus is. Notice, first of all, that Jesus is my pursuing Savior. Jesus is my pursuing Savior. Verse 13 begins with these three amazing words. It says, then Jesus came. Like in some sense, you could wrap up the entire message of the gospel just in those two words. Jesus came. The Almighty God loves you and he loves me so much that Jesus came. And when Jesus came, the story doesn't peak at his birth or end at his baptism, but it culminates in his death. It revives at his resurrection. It is punctuated when he goes back to heaven to prepare a place for all of those who love him. This is the call of the gospel, loved ones, for us to understand right now Jesus came and that because Jesus came, the call for us is to stop running from the Savior whose sole mission is to bring unending glory to God in his unrelenting pursuit of you and me. Listen to what God says to the Israelites in Deuteronomy 7. This is amazing. It's after God has rescued them from slavery in Egypt, and the same principle that God communicates to the people all those years ago is is applying to you and me today. Listen to what he says. Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 and 8. Moses says, He, meaning God, did not choose you or pour out his love upon you because you were a larger nation than any other, For you were the smallest of all. It was just because he loves you. (laughs) It's just because he loves you. He doesn't choose you to be in a relationship with him because you have some special talent or we have some special ability or something unique that we can offer to God that nobody else seems to have. He comes for us because he loves us. 
And it's the display of his perfect love within our lives that brings unending glory to him. And there's a lot of us in this room right now who already know that. By the grace of God, we know that Jesus came for us because he loves us. The challenge with this, though, is that until you know that this is why Jesus comes for you, we think, we have it in our minds sometimes, that Jesus will only come to us in the easy ways that we want him to come. You know what I mean? Like, you could be here today, and you do not know Jesus. And you have not surrendered your life to him. You don't know him as your Savior and Lord. And maybe you're here, and you're going through a tragedy today. You're buried in grief today. You're drowning in a health crisis today. And if you were honest with yourself, if you were honest with the people sitting around you or someone you came with, if you are honest with God, you're going through something so deep and so hard right now that you barely even know which way is up. But what you need to realize, what we need to realize in those moments is that Jesus is using that circumstance to pursue you. And Maybe you sit here and think to yourself, well, wait a second. If, if Jesus is going to let something like that happen in my life simply for the sake of pursuing me, then why would I want to be in a relationship with that kind of Jesus? Listen, because this is so important. You want to be in a relationship with that kind of Jesus because that kind of Jesus loves you enough to tell you from the very beginning that your hope in life will never be found in better health or in less grief or in zero tragedy. He loves you enough to teach you from the very beginning that your only hope in life will be found in him. Your only hope in life is found in the reality that he loves you enough to come for you. So don't miss the urgency here. Jesus comes to be baptized by John. Jesus makes this journey all the way from where he was to where he needs to be to carry out the Father's plan. Because what happens here in the Jordan River, Jesus getting baptized, is a huge step in the journey toward the redemption of God's people. But the question then is why? Like why does Jesus need to be baptized? Which leads to the next point. Not only is Jesus my pursuing Savior, but he's also my perfect righteousness. Jesus is my perfect righteousness. So John sees Jesus coming, and John immediately recognizes who Jesus is. And verse 14 says that John would have prevented him. The way that phrase is worded in the original language, it means that John kept trying to prevent him. He kept saying to him, I need to be baptized by you, and, and do you come to me? It's like John is saying, I don't need to baptize you, Jesus. You need to baptize me. See, John's whole ministry was to prepare the way for Jesus. And the ministry that John had been given by God was to preach a message of judgment. And he was calling people to turn away from their sins and, and turn to God and be baptized as a sign that that had truly happened within their life. It's called a baptism of repentance. But now, Jesus comes along and John knows who Jesus is. John knows that Jesus is not the one who needs his sins to be taken away, but Jesus is the one who takes away the sins of the world. And so John is calling people to a baptism of repentance, and yet Jesus has no sin in him of which he needs to repent. So then why is Jesus all but demanding that John baptize him in the Jordan River? Well, the answer, I think, is in verse 15. But Jesus answered him, 
Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, this must be done because we need to do all that God requires. See, if, if Jesus is going to provide salvation for sinners, then Jesus needs to identify with those sinners. And this physical act of being immersed into water is a graphic demonstration of Jesus' identification with us. Think of it like this. When we get baptized, we are saying, I'm identifying with Jesus. But when Jesus got baptized, long before any of us ever would, he said, I'm identifying with them. They are my people. They belong to me, and I belong to them. And Jesus says, my perfect righteousness, my perfect obedience to the Father will cover over all of their sins when they believe in me. Which means then that when we get baptized, our purpose is not to step into a tank full of water and talk about how messy our life used to be and how great it is now that we have Jesus. Our purpose when we step into that tank is to talk about the goodness and the glory and the grace of Jesus Christ upon our life and to testify about what he has done for us. It's not about what we have done. It's not about what we do now for him. It's about what he has done for us in our lives. And the reality is we stand in that tank full of water only because of his grace and his goodness and his glory. And were it not for him pouring out those things upon us, not only would we not be standing in a tank full of water, we wouldn't even be alive. And the further reality is that once we step out of that tank, that testimony never changes. We don't go from here and tell people that we're saved because of how great we are. We don't go from here and tell people that we're saved because we've known God all of our lives. Like, loved ones, can I just say, please don't say that. We haven't known God all of our lives. You haven't known him all of your life. I haven't known him all of my life. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, Ephesians 2. Like we were dead in our sins. We have not always known God and we would not know God at all were it not for his grace and his goodness and his glory poured out upon our lives. Like we don't stand in that tank and tell people that we're saved because we've done more good things than we've done bad things or, or that we're saved even because we've stood in that tank and we've been baptized. We go from here and we tell people that we have been saved because God has been gracious to us. He has poured out his mercy and his love upon us. And were it not for the reality that God has done that for me and he has done that for you, then we would be spending an eternity separated from him in a real place called hell. Listen, loved ones, God chooses us to make much of himself. He chooses us to glorify himself, not to make much of us. Which helps us to understand, I think, what happens next. Not only is Jesus my pursuing Savior and my perfect righteousness, but he is also my precious substitute. So notice what happens next, verse 16. When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. So notice here that Jesus is fully immersed into the water. That's what the word baptism means. 
It's not used in these instances in the New Testament to mean pouring or sprinkling. It's, it's always used to mean to fully immerse or to dip an object into a liquid, in this case, into water. That's why we baptize here by immersion, going completely into the water and then coming back up. We're following the example of Jesus' baptism here. Then notice again, verse 16, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. Like, again, I, I don't know how else to say this, except to say, don't miss the urgency here. Like, don't miss what's happening here. Something extraordinary, something supernatural is taking place in this moment right now. Jesus goes into the water, and then he comes back up. And as he comes back up, instantly, the heavens are ripped open right in front of him. This is an Old Testament picture of God himself coming down from the heavens to be with his people. So what we see here is that in Christ, God is declaring, God is affirming not only his desire to be with his people, but he is declaring and affirming that Jesus is his one and only son whom he is sending to save his people from their sins. So not only are the heavens opened right in front of him, but then verse 16 continues, and he saw the spirit of God descending on him like a dove and coming to rest on him. So this is the spirit of God coming upon Jesus and anointing him, affirming him in his role as the savior sent from God as the one who would be the true king over his people. Verse 17. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Now, what's interesting about this is that any Jewish person who was standing there at that particular time and was watching all of these supernatural things unfold and was watching the heavens being ripped open and this voice audibly speaking to Jesus and then saw the Spirit of God coming down upon Jesus, any Jewish person who was standing there and had any expectation that a Messiah was soon to come, they would take what God has just said to Jesus here in verse 17 and they would eventually link it all the way back to the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 42 and verse 1, up on the screen, it says this. Behold, my servant, this is God speaking, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. So what God is saying here is that this is his servant. What God has said in Isaiah 42 is being fulfilled in Matthew chapter 3. This is his son, by the way, in whom the soul of God delights. This is God's precious son whom he has given to die for our sins and he is the king who will bring justice, perfect justice to the nations and his kingship will rule over your life and over mine. See, when the spirit of God descends on Jesus like a dove, Jewish people would uh, see a dove and they would think gentleness and they would think peace. But when they saw a dove, they would also think sacrifice. Because a dove was one of the animals that they would often use to sacrifice to the Lord. And so now we have this amazing display of the Trinity coming together in this one event at the baptism of Jesus. The Son baptized, the Spirit anointing, the Father affirming, and the Father says, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. 
Like any sacrifice the people gave to God had to be pure, had to be spotless and without blemish. And for as hard as the people tried, none of the animals that they sacrificed in the Old Testament was absolutely perfect in every single way. All the sacrifices, of course, had to meet every requirement that God put forth in his law, but those sacrifices only served as a symbol of something greater that was still to come. But God himself is saying here that Jesus is the perfect, spotless sacrifice for us. That Jesus is unblemished in every possible way. And that God is well pleased with this sacrifice and therefore God is perfectly pleased with the perfection of his son. So, loved ones, don't miss this. Like, don't miss what an amazing, beautiful picture of Jesus that this really is. Notice here that he is our pursuing Savior. He is our perfect righteousness, and he is our precious substitute. Like, it is time for us to see who Jesus is. But notice this second. It's time for us to receive what Jesus provides. See, what Jesus does here in Matthew 3 really propels us through the rest of the New Testament to see why baptism should matter so much to us today. And we've kind of come this far uh, so far without really fully defining the term, so let's define what we mean when we talk about baptism. To start, we are not talking about infant baptism. We are not talking about pouring water over someone or sprinkling water onto someone. Instead, we are talking about the act whereby a professing believer in Jesus Christ is fully immersed into the water and then comes back up out of the water as a way of identifying with Jesus Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. Okay? So we're, we're talking about this act whereby a professing believer in Jesus Christ is fully immersed into the water and then comes back up out of the water as a way of identifying with Jesus Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. So when we look at the baptism of Jesus, notice here three things that Jesus provides. First of all, he provides a command to obey. He provides a command to obey. Again, you and I getting baptized is not simply an example that Jesus sets for us to follow. It's actually a command for us to obey. Think again of Jesus' words at the very end of Matthew 28. He says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. So Jesus gives us our mission. He gives us our mission as a church. He gives us our mission as believers to make disciples of all nations. And the way that that happens is through going, baptizing, and teaching. Now, notice what Matthew 28 is saying. We are to baptize those who are disciples of Jesus Christ. But implied in that statement is the command for disciples of Jesus Christ to be baptized. Why? Because when we get baptized, we are baptized into the name of. We are baptized as a way of identifying with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit of God. So, in other words, this is a very intentional act of saying that the Father has set his love upon me. And he has sovereignly chosen me from before the foundation of the world. 
And the Son has saved me by his redeeming death and victorious resurrection. And the Spirit has sealed me. He lives within me, and he has sealed me unto the day of redemption. See, we need to understand that this is, this is massive. This is the way that we identify with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. See, loved ones, my concern when it comes to baptism and the way that we talk about it is that sometimes we approach baptism like it's optional. As in, I'll do it when I'm ready. Just not ready yet. Haven't been ready for the 20 years that I've been saved. Listen, when we come to this discussion about baptism, we need to see, we need to understand that Jesus takes baptism very seriously, and we must as well. We need to see that baptism is not an option to choose. It is a command to obey. It is a command to obey. Notice this also. It's an identity to embrace. It's an identity to embrace. The Apostle Paul picks up on the imagery of baptism in 1 Corinthians 10. He says this in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 and 2, again, up on the screen for you. It says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So he's talking here about the people of Israel, and they were leaving Egypt, trying to escape Pharaoh's army, and and they're standing there at the foot of the Red Sea. They have this massive body of water on one side of them and this angry Egyptian army on the other side of them who's chasing them. And they're crying out to the Lord. And this pillar of cloud, which represents the presence of God, moves from being in front of them to behind them so that now this pillar of cloud separates them from the Egyptians who are chasing them. And they get to the foot of the Red Sea. Moses raises his staff and the waters part and the people cross on dry ground. When they all get to the other side, Moses raises his staff again and the waters come back down and it swallows up the Egyptians and God's people are saved. See, what's happening at the Red Sea in that moment is more than just God saving his people. When Israel stood at the foot of the Red Sea in that moment, all they could see is that they were slaves. And for centuries, they had been trying to escape their slavery and find their freedom until that one day when God, in his grace and in his mercy and in his power, opens up the sea and the ones who had been held in slavery for so long are finally set free. See, what the Israelites came to realize was that God had set them free. And when God had set them free, it was a brand new day for them. They had a new beginning because they had been safely delivered by God. And when you and I get baptized and we step into that water, we are saying the very same thing. Not that we have been set free because of that act of baptism. You're saying that at that moment that God saved me. That was a new day for me because of what Jesus Christ has done for me. When, when you get into that tank and you start testifying about God's grace and his love and his mercy within your life, you're saying that in that moment of my salvation, because of what God has done for me in Jesus Christ, no longer am I a slave to my sin. Like, no longer am I a slave to worry or fear or doubt or anxiety or lust or depression or anger. No longer am I held back by the sin that has pushed me down for so long because I have been safely and totally delivered by the grace of God through Jesus Christ. 
Like, just think for a minute about what's happening in this moment that Jesus is being baptized. The baptism of Jesus affirmed his identity as the Son of God. That's what's happening in Matthew chapter 3. His identity is being affirmed as the Son of God. But to this point, like to the point of his baptism at that moment, Jesus has not healed anyone. He hasn't made the lame to walk or the blind to see. He hasn't healed the sick. He hasn't fed thousands of people with a bag lunch. He hasn't done any of that. Instead, he's living out in the middle of nowhere in relative obscurity, waiting for the right time. So to this point in his life, his identity is not in his ability to do the supernatural. His identity is not in the fact that he's from this out-of-the-way village that nobody goes to called Nazareth. His identity instead is wrapped up in the reality that he is who his father says he is. Your identity is wrapped up in who your father says you are. Your identity is not defined by what you need to be delivered from, but by what you have been delivered to. Listen, you are not everything that the culture says that you are. Like, we need to hear this. You are not everything that the world around you says that you are. Youth, young adults, don't mean to pick on you guys, but but the reality is your age group, your demographic right now, you get bombarded every single day with message after message after message after message that you need to be this and you need to do that and you need to have this other thing. To some degree, we all get that. And can I just say to you, if you're in that age group as someone who's a little bit farther down the road than you are, just a little bit, just as someone who's a little bit farther down that road, can I just say to you that the longer you keep trying to be all that and the longer that you keep trying to chase all of those things and the greater priority that you keep giving to that very thing within your life, the quicker that you will forget who God has already said that you are. You can't do that. Listen, that's not you. It's not. You want to know who you are? Right here. Like this is it, right? You want to know everything you need to know about who you are, who God has made you to be, what God has called you to do. You're going to find it right here in this book. Listen, if you are in Jesus Christ, you need to hear this. You are a blood-bought child of God. You are loved. You are saved. You are forgiven. You are secure. You are redeemed. You are free from condemnation, and you are fully confident in God's favor. If you are in Jesus Christ, you are one for whom God has ripped open the heavens to declare his eternal love for you. If you are in Jesus Christ, you have been given the Holy Spirit to comfort you and guide you and protect you and direct you and strengthen you to go where he leads you and he seals you unto the day of redemption. If you are in Jesus Christ, you are one to whom Jesus has said, you are mine. And he says to you, you have my perfect righteousness and because of that, you have life. Like you want to know who you are, loved ones, right here. Right here. 
you want to know the identity that you've been given by God through faith in Jesus Christ, stop turning to the world. Stop turning to the world and start turning to the word. Got to see this. Got to see that, that this is not just a command for us to obey. It's an identity for us to embrace. But it's also a symbol for us to treasure. Romans chapter 6. By the time we get to this point in the book of Romans in chapter 6, the Apostle Paul is already neck deep in the glorious theology of our salvation. And listen to what he says, Romans chapter 6, verse 1, up on the screen. It says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Baptism by immersion becomes the perfect picture of what Jesus Christ has done in our lives. So picture this for a minute. We go down into the water, and that symbolizes our death to sin. It symbolizes the reality that our sin has been buried with Christ. But then we come back up out of the water, and that symbolizes that our sins have been washed away, and we walk in newness of life in Jesus Christ. So the act of baptism becomes an outward physical expression of an inward spiritual reality. We walk in newness of life. Like, try and wrap your mind around that for a second. Like, when Jesus rose from the dead, he was not simply resuscitated. When he rose from the dead, he was not just given a better version of his old life. No, he had brand new life. And so when Jesus raises us from being dead in our sins, we are not just kind of spiritually resuscitated. We're not just given a better version of our old life. No, we are given a brand new life in Jesus Christ, and we walk in newness of life in him. I remember somebody who got baptized in our church here a few years ago, and uh, he said, when you put me under the water, just hold me down there for a few seconds. And we're like, what? <laughs> right? Like, like, you want us to do what in church? And, and he said, no, just hold me down there for a few seconds. And he, he went on to explain it. He said, Jesus was in the tomb for three days. And it was my sin that put him in the tomb for three days. So when you dunk me under the water, just keep me down there for a few seconds. And then please bring me back up. But, but like, just bring me back up. Why? Because baptism is not just about going down into the water and getting wet. This is a glorious picture that Jesus Christ has died in our place and for our sins. That he has taken all of our sins upon himself and he has been raised to newness of life. And by faith in him, we can be raised to newness of life as well. So, loved ones, see this. Like, feel this. Baptism is a command for us to obey. It's an identity 
for us to embrace, and it is a symbol for us to treasure. So it is time for us not simply to see who Jesus is or to receive what Jesus provides, but now it is also time to do what Jesus commands. For all of us in the room right now, this this is the call to action for every single person sitting here right now, for me as well. This is our call to action. It involves at least one of two things. First, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Like, don't miss the urgency. Again, this is the call that goes out to all people. Acts chapter 2, Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost, and, and the message of the gospel cuts to the hearts of the people who are listening, and they come to the apostles and say, brothers, what now shall we do? And Peter looks back at them and says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. That may be better translated, because of the forgiveness of your sins. Maybe you know of Jesus, or you know about Jesus, but you don't truly know Jesus in a personal relationship where you are absolutely convinced that you are a sinner who has violated the holy standards of a perfect God, and that we are all, every one of us, destined to suffer the righteous and rightful wrath of this God against our sins. But at the same time, this holy God loves you and he loves me so much that he has sent his only son, Jesus Christ, into the world to die in our place and for our sins and to take all of God's wrath against our sins upon himself. And right now, by the power of his Holy Spirit, he is calling out to you in this moment to turn away from your sins to turn away from all of your efforts to save yourself and to make God happy with you and to trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and for the hope of eternal life, to trust that right here and right now, Jesus Christ can truly give to you newness of life, to surrender the rest of your life in full obedience to him. All you need to do, friend, is call out to God right now in the quietness of this moment. You don't need to talk to the person beside you. You don't need to talk to me. It's just you and God right now in this moment. And all you need to do is say, God, I am a sinner. And I have sinned against you. And I acknowledge that only Jesus Christ can save me from my sins. Lord Jesus, I believe that you are my Savior. And I turn away from my sins. And I surrender my life to you. you're here today and you have not done that it's time it's time to see who Jesus is it's time to receive what Jesus provides it's time to do what Jesus commands and it begins right here with this very first step repent of your sins I have to wonder, in a group this size, if there are some here who have repented and you're genuinely following after Jesus Christ, but you haven't been baptized. And as a pastor, I often hear a lot of common reasons why people don't take the step of obedience, and they're said in a bunch of different ways, but they all end up being actually the same kind of things. And, and one of the excuses that we hear pretty often is, I'm too nervous. Like, I'm afraid to be in front of so many people, and 
And what we've often found is that there's a really good solution for that, and it's to remember that God will be with you. Sometimes it's not, I'm too nervous. Sometimes it's, it's this whole baptism thing is too wet. <laughs> like, it's baptism, right? Like, I can't stand the thought of other people seeing me soaking wet after I get baptized. And, and maybe that's some fear in your life. Maybe that's some pride in your heart. Maybe it's something else that's getting in the way. But we often find that there's a really good solution for that as well. And it's to remember that God will be with you. Sometimes it's not, I'm too nervous or it's too wet. Sometimes it's, I'm too shy. And I don't know what to say. Don't know how to put the words together. I don't talk so good in front of people and whatever it is. And we found that there's a really good solution for that as well. And it's, wait for it, God will be with you. And sometimes you're, you're all of these things. I'm too nervous, it's too wet, I'm too shy. But then some of you, some of you are in a position right now where it's just, I'm too afraid. Like, what's my family going to think? What are my friends going to think? Listen, for some of you, you're coming out of backgrounds, you're coming out of traditions where you were baptized as an infant. And for you to step into a tank and be baptized now as an adult, as a follower of Jesus Christ, for some of you, that's like turning your back on your family. And taking this step of obedience to Jesus Christ may be one of the most courageous things that he has ever led you to do. But you need to remember that the one that you're following into baptism is also the one who has already said to you, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. For whoever finds his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. There is no excuse that we can make that is too great for the Spirit of God to overcome. So we just had a couple of baptisms here last week, and if you were here, you know that God was absolutely and totally glorified in the testimony of that brother and sister in Christ who got baptized last week. But if you are here this morning and you are a follower of Jesus Christ and you have not yet been baptized, you need to hear we have no problem setting up that tank again next week and we will baptize as many people as God is leading to get baptized next week. We will do it next week again. So this is the call right now. It's time. It's time to realize that we don't have time to waste now is the time to realize that it's no time for playing games or for making excuses. Now is the time. Repent and be baptized. And if that's you, if you're here this morning and God's doing this work in your life and he's speaking to you right now and you're a believer in Jesus Christ but you haven't yet been baptized and you know God is leading you in this direction, then Come up to the front and talk to somebody after we're done here. All you need to do is make your way to the front after we're done and, and come and talk to me. I'll be right up here. Or talk to somebody else on our prayer team at the end of the service. All you need to do is come to the front and just say to us, God's been working in my life and I need to get baptized. And we're going to rejoice with you. We're going to pray with you. And then we're going to tell you what the very next step is that you need to take. And that is it. Like loved ones, don't miss the urgency here. 
We've seen who Jesus is. We've seen what Jesus has come to do, and now we're seeing what Jesus is calling us to do. This is too important. Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And then finally this, proclaim this gospel for the glory of our God. Like, we need to understand, we need to remember, don't we, loved ones, that, that the witness doesn't stop in the water. Right? We've all been commanded by Jesus to take this gospel that is symbolized by this baptism and proclaim its good news wherever we go. Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations. Go and tell everyone to whom God sends you that Jesus is our pursuing Savior. Jesus is our perfect righteousness. Jesus is our precious substitute. So go to your workplace tomorrow and make disciples. Go to your school tomorrow and make disciples. Go to your family this afternoon and make disciples. Go to your neighborhood this week and make disciples. Proclaim this gospel not this gospel of our own goodness, but this gospel of God's glory. Proclaim this gospel, not just that God loves me and that's it, but proclaim this gospel that God loves me so that, God loves me so that I can make his name and his power and his love and his glory known among the nations. We are not the end of the gospel, loved ones. God is. God is the end of this glorious gospel, and so may he strengthen us by the power of his Holy Spirit within us to shine the light of the glory of his gospel into the dark world into which he sends us. Let's pray for that, because that's the prayer that God loves to answer.